chapter from 1 Samuel 18 through 20. Um, chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul went, sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out and all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David tens of thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Verse 10, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Chapter 19, verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, as he had sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Chapter 20, verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out your father, my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is disposed towards David, shall I not then sin and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am alive still, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Verse 41 and as soon as the boy had gone, David arose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. 
and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because you have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing to be uh, together. It's a best blessing to be before your word. God, would you think of those um, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Florida, many other places that uh, because of weather probably prevented from meeting uh, today like we have the privilege of doing. God, thank you for watching out for us here. Uh, but we do lift up those who may not have had um, the same fortune we had. And so we pray uh, that your spirit will be felt in those places uh, just as it's felt here even now. God, we pray that your word will continue to go out, uh, hurricane or not, uh, storm or not, sunshine or not. Uh, God, we pray your word will continue to go out and accomplish all the purposes you intend it to accomplish. And we trust in you for that. God, we thank you that we have the chance to be here uh, before your word. And we pray that it would speak to our hearts in ways that only you have the power to do. We trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. The other night, my dad made a comment about uh, the way my, my grandmother would prepare meals, and it reminded me of a, or made me notice uh, a way that she and I are different. Now, I am not a cook. Uh, I don't know anything about the oven. I just stay away from that. Uh, I can put gr eggs on top of the stove. That's about the most I can do. But I do like to grill. I like to grill meat. And when it comes to, to grilling meat, I'm kind of a, a snob on the temperature. Like if I have stood over a warm, hot grill and made this, you know, meat over however long it took, I want to eat it while it's still hot. Like call me picky, but I can't stand it. It's like a pet peeve. If I grill something and then sit around and wait and it just gets cold while I'm waiting and I can't eat it. And uh, this is really, I'm as much to, uh, to blame for this as anything because I'm, I'm just not really good at estimating how long something's going to take. And so Amber's in charge of everything else that we're going to eat. And so I, know, I don't have any idea when the meat's going to be done. It's just done when it's done. And so she can't plan around me to like have everything else ready. And if that's part, that's part of it. The other part is that we have three rowdy kids and like telling them this is going to be the exact time we're all going to sit down and eat. I mean, that's impossible. So I've come up with a solution. I have a, I have a solution to this. I just go ahead and eat my meat as I'm taking it off the grill. <laughs> Because it's hot. I don't eat, you know, maybe at least like one piece of chicken. You know, not the whole hamburger, just like half of it or something. That way, you know, I provided it's food for, and I got to eat it while it's hot. That's just my solution. My grandmother, on the hand, is about the complete opposite. And uh, she uh, can cook as good as any grandmama from Alabama or South Carolina can. I'm sure yours can cook really good too. But she, of course, is an expert. She can time it all where it all comes out at the same time. It's all perfect. It's all hot. It's amazing. But she serves food differently than I do. The way she serves it is she makes everybody's plate. Everybody's got their, you know, it's all piled on there and it's all set. And, and she sets it down and she says, you know, y'all come eat, y'all come eat, y'all come eat. And then what does she do? She turns around and goes back in the kitchen. And we're sitting down at the table. And she's either working on dessert or, or cleaning up or whatever. And we're like, Grandma, come eat. She's like, no, 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 y'all eat. I'm, I'm not eating. She, she worked all this time on this food, all these different things. And she doesn't want to eat. She just is there to serve. Does your grandmother do that? Am I the only grandmother that does have a grandmother that does that? I've just seen grandmamas do this. My grandmama, that's how she makes food. I am so concerned about, yes, I mean, I want other people to eat the, the meat I'm grilling, but really, who am I grilling for, right? 
Grandmama is so focused on serving other people, she doesn't even care to eat. She's just there to serve other people. I grill because I love to eat. Grandmama cooks because she loves to serve, right? We do these for very different ways. Today, I want to ask you about your heart, hopefully not just on the little things like how you prepare dinner, but on a bigger level, who do you care more about? What is your heart focused on? Is your heart more focused on yourself or is your heart focused on other people? Our passage today gives us a scenario, this this story going through the life of David now, especially now as we track with Jonathan and Saul. And as we see this contrast here, we're going to see people who have a very different heart, one who loves themselves and one who loves other people. If you've been going with us through 1 Samuel, we've seen this incredibly well-written story so far, and it's going to keep going. We just love this story of how God is working through His people, and how God raised up Samuel as a judge, and how the people rejected God and Samuel and asked for an earthly king, and God in His grace gave them Saul, and then Saul quickly fell because of his own pride, and he's raising up David. And David, last week we saw the most famous passage of these two books, defeats Goliath the giant with just a sling and a stone. And so Saul is still king, but it's clear that he's on the way out and David's on the way in. And if defeating Goliath didn't make it clear enough, these three chapters put before us David in a way that we know this is the guy. This guy is going to be the king. And really, of of these chapters, that's kind of the backdrop. That's the setting. That's the, hey, we're going to have dinner today. But how we do it, how we respond, how Saul responds and how Jonathan responds, there's the tension, I think, in this passage. The passage is not just God's blessing. We see that. That's clear. That's the the backdrop. That's the setting. But the question is, the tension is, how do you respond to the blessing of the Lord? So before we get to their response, I want you to see this, to see God's hand as we track with this story, to see God's hand of blessing upon David. Chapter 18 picks up right where 17 left off, where David had just defeated Goliath and the Israelites had defeated the Philistines, at least for the day. They've, they've won for this battle. There'll be more to come. And so in 18, chapter, chapter 18, verse 5, read that Saul has now enlisted David in the army as a leader. It says, Saul set him over the men of war. And we read that it's, it's going well for him. It says, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So David goes from winning his first battle over this giant to now being in charge of some pretty big segment of the military, and he is winning everywhere he goes. And that word success keeps getting repeated. Chapter 18, verse 5, chapter 18, verse 14, and David had success in all his undertaking. Verse 15, when Saul saw the great success he had, he stood in fearful all. Chapter 18, verse 30, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. So it's clear David is succeeding. God is taking this little, ruddy, handsome, young shepherd boy, and he is now not only defeating one giant, one uh, champion of the Philistines, he is winning everywhere he goes. And because of that, he is loved. I counted six times that somebody, it says somebody loved David just in chapter 18. First, it starts with Jonathan, then it's all of Israel and Judah. And then it's Saul's own daughter and then all of Saul's servants over and over again. This is a loved guy. And it's clear the reason for God's for 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 David's success and for the people's love is that the Lord is with David. We read that phrase three times in chapter 18. 
verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 12, 14, and 21, 28. The Lord was clear that he was blessing David. He was with David. Things are going well, and he is loved. Except for, if, if I get to pick how, think, how God's with me, I'm not sure I'd pick David's way. Read through this chapter. We mentioned this last week. The Spirit has come upon David. God is blessing him. He is right where God wants him. And yet, he's on the run. People are out for his life. This is not going like super smooth and calm, right? He is being challenged and stretched. David looks a lot like Joseph from the story in the second half of the book of Genesis. If you know that story, the refrain over and over again is the Lord was with Joseph. And yet, what does Joseph's life look like? Well, his brothers sell him into slavery, and then his master's new slave master's wife accuses him of, of assault, and he gets thrown into prison. And there he helps out somebody who forgets about him for two years, and so he's left in prison while Pharaoh's on his throne. He's waiting for Pharaoh to come get him. And all the while, it says the Lord was with Joseph. And if I was Joseph, and I'm not, thankfully, Joseph was better than this, but if I was Joseph, I'd be like, wait, wait, Lord, where are you? I'm in prison. You're supposed to be with me? And yet God's eyes, as we saw last week, God doesn't look the same way we do. God doesn't look at things the way we do. God is with David, even as he's on the run, even as things are challenging, because God is at work to, to put together this story in an incredible way that he can experience God's blessing and experience what God intends for him. So that's the backdrop. That's the backdrop. David is in charge. David, David has the blessing of the Lord. He has success. People love him. And God is continuing to protect him. David somehow eludes uh, Saul's spear twice in chapter 18, once more in chapter 19. He protects David as he goes to battle, battle against the Philistines as a whole group and as an individual. David protects um, God protects David against Saul, uh, against Saul by using Saul's own children, his daughter and his son. Over and over again, God is protecting and blessing and providing for him. That's what's going on. David is being cared for by the Lord and God is blessing him. So the tension is, how do they respond? How do people respond to David's blessing? Well, for Saul, he's not real crazy about this. At the start of chapter 18, we saw that Saul is the one who has enlisted David as a military leader. And so he sends him out to battle. And yet when he wins, Saul's not real crazy about how it happens. As they come back, the women are coming, as David and the other ones are coming back from battle, the women all come out and they're singing and they're dancing and they're celebrating this victory. And this is the song that they come up with to celebrate the victory. Verse 7, Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul can't stand it. He can't stand that David got a bigger number than David, that David got a bigger number than Saul did. It says, they, Saul says in verse 8 and 9, Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Here's the turning point on the relationship. Saul had just enlisted David to go fight the champion, the Goliath, that Saul was too afraid to fight. Saul should have been the one in the battle. And yet he put David in his place. David wins it. David goes out to fight other battles for Saul. Saul's the one that put him out there. It's Saul's in charge of the army. He sent David. And yet when David wins, Saul can't stand it. And from this point, the end of Saul's life, Saul is out to get David. Why is that? Why can he not stand that David is winning the battles? 
You know why? It's because Saul is self-centered, and that being self-centered is leading to jealousy. Here's the first response to God's blessing of David and this story and so many other places throughout our lives is that we can respond in jealousy if our heart is self-centered. Jealousy is self-centered. When we are jealous for something, jealous over something, that we're not getting something, it's because we're focused on ourselves. We are self-centered. And that's what causes our jealousy. The only way we can be jealous is that if we're more focused, we care more about ourselves than we care about other people. Saul, above all, you know who he loves? Saul. That's his favorite person. Saul's number one fan is Saul. And he is happy about that. And when other people don't applaud Saul as much as he thinks he should be applauded, he doesn't like it. Can you hear his jealousy as he repeats back the words to them? He got 10,000? I only got 1,000? Why is the song written that way? Can't we rewrite the song? Saul's jealousy is just fuming. He's the one that sent David to battle, and yet he can't stand that David won, and he's getting more fame. Saul is living for Saul. He's living for his own kingdom. He doesn't care that Israel as a whole is winning. It's not enough to him that our nation is winning. The winning streak right now is that it's been a while since the Philistines have defeated Israel. But Saul doesn't care about that. He doesn't care just that Israel has to win. He wants Saul to be the winner. doesn't matter that we win. He wants I. He wants I. He wants me to be the one that wins. David and Saul are two different players on the same team. It shouldn't matter who hits the home run. It shouldn't matter who got the most number of strikeouts, who got the win for the pitcher. It doesn't matter who scores the touchdown. It just matters that we beat the other team, right? Unless you're Saul, then it matters who the MVP is. It matters not just the scoreboard. It matters in the box score. It matters in the personal records. If you're Saul, it doesn't matter just that we win. It matters that he wants him to win. Saul wants the glory for himself. He's self-centered and he's jealous. He's jealous of others' victories because of his self-centered heart. The more David succeeds, the more jealous and the more violent Saul gets. It starts out with just this anger, this keeping his eye on him, but it quickly progresses to a life-threatening situation. Day after day, Sorry, the day after the women wrote this song and sing about Saul killing thousands and David ten thousands, Saul has been, it's like he's been stewing on this overnight. And so he gets up the next day and David is out playing this instrument that he's been playing to help soothe Saul's anger. And Saul has a a spear in his hand. And you keep reading this refrain, you remember back, that's the same instrument, same, same weapon that Goliath had. So this is not a good picture of Saul standing in his own house with a spear in his hand. You're in your own house, Saul. Why do you have a spear in your hand? At least somebody should have asked him that, right? But they don't. And so he chunks the spear at David two different times, trying to kill him. He, David evades those, uh, those two different times. And for a little while, there's a little peace. But it gets, get, keeps getting worse and worse. Saul has another plot, which I don't exactly know why this was his idea. But his idea was, all right, that didn't work. Here's my better, better idea to try to get David I'm going to give him my daughter to marry. I don't know what that says about his daughter, that he thinks this is like a plot against David. My assumption, not assumption, my my best interpretation here is that he's saying if he marries into the family, he's got to keep going to war. So he's playing the law of averages. He's saying, 
all right, I can't kill him, or at least I shouldn't. I know I'm not supposed to, but maybe the Philistines will do the dirty work for me. If I marry him into the family, he's going to feel like he's got to keep going to battle over and over again. And eventually, one of the Philistines will get him, and I'll, that's what I really want. At the last minute, he decides to take away his oldest daughter. It's not to, not to give him to David. But then he learns that his youngest daughter, is actually, or younger daughter, Michael, is interested. She likes David. And then he's like, oh, maybe she'll be a snare. Again, I don't know what that says about Michael, that he thinks that his daughter is going to be a trick to, his, to, this, to David that doesn't like. But he comes up with a pretty gruesome uh, way of trying to hurt David. He sends out David to go kill a hundred Philistines. Except for the way he says it is not go kill them. Go bring back a hundred foreskins, which is the difference between a Philistine and an Israelite. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. You know that's not a good thing. <laughs> David, though, in his enthusiasm to prove how dedicated he is to the kingdom, doesn't just bring back a hundred. He kills two hundred Philistines. And brings back the token he was supposed to bring. This was Saul's way of saying, surely one of these hundred men will do the dirty work for me and I won't have to kill him. His anger, his jealousy is just, he's plotting more and more and more trying to get at David. Because he's jealous, because he's self-centered. He doesn't want the kingdom to go to David. He wants to be in charge. He's afraid he's losing the grip of power. And he's grasping at it with everything he can to try to stop losing the grip. And that doesn't work. He sets a trap outside David's house to try to kill him one morning. Michael, the, his new wife, David's new wife, learns about it and lets him out the back window. And this starts now the, the, the fleeing, the escaping, the, the constantly on the run that David will have. Again and again, David escapes. Saul gets more and more angry. His jealousy continues to grow because Saul is focused on himself. He's self-centered. He likes being in charge. And he's beginning to lose the grip. It is easy for us to see the foolishness of Saul. To see this character and say, what are you doing? This isn't going to work. If God is with David, you can't stop it, Saul. If God is blessing him, no, no amount of grasping, no amount of scheming, no amount of planning is going to stop this. And yet, Saul continues. It's easy to see it in him. Sometimes it's harder to see jealousy in us. Nobody wants to be described as a jealous person, right? That just sounds like an awful way. Nobody would say, I'm a jealous person. I'm jealous over things. And yet we see these, we feel these same, or, or let me just ask you, how, how, what emotions well up in you when somebody else gets the promotion at work or somebody else takes a nicer vacation than you and posts nice pictures online or somebody else's kid is succeeding. Somebody else is getting something you want. Somebody else is in better shape or you think they're prettier than you, or, or whatever else it may be. What, what emotions start welling up in you? Saul got angry. That's the emotion we read. But we know, or at least people smarter than me, tell me that, that anger is a secondary emotion. We have anger when we cover up something else that's going on in your lives. And so your emotion might be different. Maybe it's sad. Maybe it's when you see somebody else doing something good. How, how do you feel? Is it, are you, do you rejoice with them? Or do you feel hurt? Do you feel belittled? Do you feel insecure? Do you feel mad? Jealousy could look like all kinds of different emotions. But if we are not rejoicing, we're probably jealous. It's something that we want because we're thinking about ourselves instead of thinking about the other. Our self-centeredness can show up in any number of ways, like Saul's here, as it shows up in jealousy. He can't 
just let David's win be the nation's win. He can't just rejoice with those who rejoice. He has to take it personally, and he puts everything as a comparison with himself. How, how quickly do we do that? We are a society that puts everything as a comparison. Everything's about, is it you or me? Who's better? Who's worse? How's the comparison going? And anytime you put something as a comparison, it's a, it's a zero-sum game, right? Somebody wins and somebody loses, and that's not healthy. Uh, just as a, a, a way I see this come up, right, is anytime somebody has a story about something, one of the first things that comes to our mind is, oh, I have a story like that, but a little bit better, right? Oh, you have a Disney World story? Let me tell you my Disney World story. Oh, oh, you have a fishing story? My fish was that big, not just this big, right? We don't, we don't, we don't word it that dramatically, but when it comes to mind, somebody says, oh, here's, Here's my camping story. Here's my failed, you know, sports career story. Here's my broken bone story, my pink eye story, my mean boss story, my underpaid and overworked story, my story about a huge success that I'm having or somebody else is having or a story about how hard life is or a story about anything and everything. We hear somebody else's story and the first thing that comes to mind is, what's the story that I have like that? And secretly we're saying, it's just a little bit better. Just a little bit better. To challenge you, next time somebody tells you a story, try this. Try asking three thoughtful, meaningful questions about their life and their story before you tell your own. And watch how hard that is. I fail at this all the time. I quickly, the first thing I think about is my story that's like yours. And there's some good to that. We want to relate. But many times what we're doing is we're doing a one-upmanship. We're putting life as a competition. Our American mindset puts everything as a competition. It's you versus me. It's a, it's a, a zero-sum game. We think of life as this balance thing. For me to go up, somebody's got to go down or vice versa. But li life isn't about a zero-sum competition game. Life is about relationships. Life is about our relationship with the Lord and our relationships with one another. And relationships are not by nature competitive. They're, they're mutually encouraging. That's much more like a tide rising in the sea where the boats go up or down together right? When you're rising, my blessings may not be the same as yours, but if I rejoice in what you're rejoicing in, then I am. I'm rising as you are rising. If your sadnesses are my burdens too, and we carry them together, then we go down together. We're not, you go up and I go down. We're going at this together. Life isn't about a competition, but if we're so self-centered, so self-focused, then it becomes that way too, too quickly, and we become jealous What's incredible about the Saul's jealousy in these chapters is just how opposite it is from the way that Jonathan responds to the same circumstance. Same circumstances to opposite responses. What a remarkable contrast, especially considering their son, father and son, same family. And they see this completely different. Imagine looking now, let's look back at the same situations, but instead of from Saul's angle, let's look from Jonathan's angle. I find Jonathan's story here, just his heart here, incredibly beautiful and compelling and comforting and challenging altogether. So if Saul teaches us that jealousy is self-centered, Jonathan teaches us that love is self-sacrificing. Jealousy is self-centered, but love is self-sacrificing. Same events, different heart, completely different reaction. David defeats Goliath in chapter 17 and Jonathan's reaction is love. He says, he's on my team. He's wearing my team's jersey. 
our team won today. I love this guy. I appreciate this guy. He's on my team. 18-1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, as David speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as he loves his own soul. David's win for the nation was Israel's win. Therefore, it was Jonathan's win. He didn't need, Jonathan didn't need to be the guy out there with the sling and the stone to celebrate the day. He says, we won. We won. And he's celebrating the victory. Jonathan is an embodied version of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. In chapter 18, verse 3, because of his love for him, it says Jonathan made a covenant. He made a covenant with David. And that becomes the foundation of their relationship for the rest of their lives. In the Bible, a covenant is not just a, uh, you know, hey, pinky swear type, type friendship. It's a deep abiding relationship. It's saying, I'm making a promise to you and I'm willing to put my life on the line before you. You read in, in, in Genesis about Abraham's covenant with God and animals that are, are split open in two and this, this torch of fire and, and smoke that passes between the animals that represents God himself. He says if, if the, the, it's a way of saying in the Bible, they cut a covenant to say, if, if I don't keep my promise, make me like the animals that we just cut in two. I'm walking in between them saying, I'm going to be like this. Jonathan is doing that with David. He's saying, I, I'm tying my life to your life. And if I don't keep my end of this, if I don't love you like I'm telling you I'm loving you right now, then may I be split open like animals. My life is on the line. The love was a covenant of love. And it's a mirror of God's love for us. It's a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love, as the Jesus Storybook Bible tells our kids. Love that description. It's a love based on a promise. It's a love that you can't fall into or fall out of. Love in the Bible is not something you stumble upon. Love is something you commit to. It's a deep abiding affection that we say until death do us part type love. That's the covenant between Jonathan and David. And as we read verse 4, the next step seems, the next verse seems very odd. Many people have stumbled over this. What in the world is, David, is Jonathan doing? Verse 4, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Armor, sword, bow, belt. Okay, we get that. But the robe? Jonathan, what's going on here, bud? This is not weird in the ancient times. Powerful, but not weird. Ancient times, garments represented who you were. It represented your, 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 your status, your position, your identity. So how'd you know a priest was a priest? Because a priest was wearing an ephod, a certain priestly garment. How'd you know a king was a king? Because a king wore a robe. When Isaiah sees God in the, a vision of God on his throne in the temple, he has a robe that fills the whole place. The robe is, is a symbol of who God is, that God fills all things. So Saul would have had a robe and Jonathan as his son would have had a robe. Why would Jonathan have a robe? Because Jonathan's next in line. Jonathan is the prince. Who's supposed to be king after the king? The king's son. And Jonathan sees David. He sees God's blessing, his anointing on David, and he takes his robe off and he gives it to David. This isn't weird. This is powerful. This is Jonathan saying, you're the next king, not me. Can you imagine that humility? Can you imagine that love? That is self-sacrifice. 
Jonathan was on a track to be the next king of Israel. And he's on track to be an amazing king. We saw him earlier in the book of 1 Samuel that where his own dad was falling and failing, losing faith, Jonathan was stepping out on faith. He was winning military battles. God's blessing was on Jonathan. And yet Jonathan says, it's not me. I'm not the next guy. David, you're the guy. You get to be the next king. And he voluntarily gives away his robe. This is a remarkable self-sacrifice. This is the, the CEO of the company has built up this incredible company. He's raising up his own son to take over when he's gone. And the CEO's got the corner office, and so this, his son is the vice president, and he's put him in the office right next door, and he's saying, son, one day, this office is going to be yours. All this company is going to be yours. But his son looks at a, a rising, rising somebody in the company and says, no, dad, this is the guy. It's not me. For the sake of the company, it's not me. He's better. And he gives his office, he gives his title to the rising guy. This is the, the, the star quarterback is on the field, and yet they pull him to give way, to give the, the freshman phenom a chance to, to lead the team. And the star quarterback comes out in place for the freshman phenom, and what does he do? He takes off his helmet, and he puts it on the bench because he need, doesn't need a helmet anymore, and he puts a headset over his ears, and he talks to the offensive coordinator, the guys up in the box, and he's giving signals there on the sidelines. And in between, in between series, he's grabbing the whiteboard and he's got the markers and he's, he's helping the new, quarterback, the new quarterback see, here's the defense they're drawing. He doesn't sit and pout. He jumps in to serve. He takes off the symbol of being the leader and the player, the helmet, and he puts on the symbol of being the servant, a symbol of headphones and a marker. He's saying, I'll give whatever so that we can win. I'll sacrifice so that you can succeed. Jonathan sacrifices his shot at a throne because he loves David and he loves the Lord. He has faith that God's blessing is best. How many times do we come to a blessing, to something God's doing, and because it doesn't match what we want, we, no, 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 God, it's got to be my way. Jonathan, if you come put yourself in Jonathan's shoes, he's done nothing wrong. David, Jonathan has, has done nothing that it looks like the kingdom should be stripped from him. And yet, he sees the blessing isn't on him, it's on David. And he's willing to give it away. Another odd verse that, that, that amplifies this, but also might cause you to trip up, is when you get to chapter 19, it's another one of these crazy things that, that happens between Saul and David. Saul is trying everything he can to try to trip David up and try to kill him. And so when David flees to be with where Samuel is and the prophets are, Three different times Saul sends servants, messengers, to go kill David in that place. But you know what happens when they get there? They start prophesying. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them and they prophesied. So instead of murdering, they're preaching. That's what happens three different times when Saul sends him. Saul's like, you know what? If you want something done right, you've got to go yourself. And then we read this in chapter 19, verse 23. The Spirit of the Lord came, Spirit of God came upon him, Saul, also. And then here's the odd verse, 24. And it says, he stripped his clothes, he stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied. At this point, you're reading through the Bible, and you're like, man, people need to keep their clothes on, you know? <laughs> but that's us reading backwards to ancient times. Ancient times, they didn't know what was going on here. Saul has a robe. He's the king. Jonathan was voluntarily taking his robe off and giving it to David. But Saul's only having the, the, the kingdom and the robe 
stripped from him when the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Jonathan is giving it voluntarily. Saul is having it stripped from him. The difference is in their hearts. Saul is self-centered. Jonathan is self-sacrificing. What do, you, what do you do? How do you react when you have the opportunity to bless other people? Are, you primar- are we primarily thinking about how is this going to affect me? What's in it for me? Is this good for me? Or are we willing to say, how can I serve? How can I see where God is moving? And how can I bless that? How can I put, come alongside that and be a part of what God is doing? The challenge here is that it's going to cost us something. Many times, serving, loving, giving, it cost us something. It went one thing for Jonathan to say, yeah, I love you like a brother, just so long as I still get to be king. He's saying, I love you like a brother, and you're going to be the king in my place. So many times as, as, as Americans, maybe this kind of modern Western civilization, we think a lot about rights, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. As Americans, I'm thankful that we have a bill of rights, and that came out of a, a, a biblical idea of us being created in the image of God. That's why humans have dignity and value and worth. And we hold on to that. We cling to that. But what we see so often in the Bible is people who have rights and yet they voluntarily give them away. Jonathan had every right to the throne. If they'd have gone to court in Israel, Jonathan would have had a very good case before all the elders of Israel that Jonathan should be the next king. And yet in love, he's not holding on and clinging to his rights. He's laying them down as a way of loving and serving other people. And what we get here is one of the most, out of that love, out of that self-sacrifice, is one of the most beautiful descriptions of a friendship in the Bible. One of the, one of the things that's on the hardest times right now, I think, is true godly friendships. True godly friendships. How often do we have godly friends that we can count on? Modern readers come to this passage and we're, we're so averse to friendships that we're uncomfortable with the affection between Jonathan and David. And we'll read onto things here that would have never been here. God, the, the, the authors of this would have no, no idea of modern different views of sexuality. We, we, the Bible here is just painting a beautiful picture of people who loved one another genuinely. Friendships, true, true biblical friendships are affectionate. They are caring. They're concerned about one another. You know what acquaintances are? They're a lot easier. You can just smile at acquaintances. You don't have to carry their burdens. But friendships, true friendships, that's where joy is. It's going to cost you something, but that's where true joy is. Being a friend can be scary. It can be uncomfortable. It can be dangerous. It can be painful. And yet, there's a love there that you can't experience without that level of vulnerability. Chapter 20, that friendship goes to action. David comes back to Jonathan and says, your dad's out to get me. Jonathan says, no, I don't think so. You think you've missed something. David says, all right, let's, let's put this to the test. I'm going to skip out on a feast. And when, when Saul sees I'm not there, you tell me how he responds. Yeah, I'm going to tell him, let's tell him that I'm going back to Bethlehem, but really I'm just hanging out in the woods. And the first day that they do this, Saul sees that David's not there and he just assumes uh, maybe he's unclean and wasn't allowed to come. But the second day, Saul says, where is Jonathan? He asked Jonathan, where is David? And he says, David has gone back to Bethlehem. And Saul is so upset, he grabs that spear again. Saul, you're in your own house. You don't need a spear in your own house. But he picks up the spear. And this time, where does he aim it? He aims it at his own son, Jonathan. 
He tells Jonathan, what are you doing? The kingdom is yours. If you love this guy, then you'll never have a kingdom. You'll never be king. It almost sounds like he cares about his son until he throws the spear at his son. You can tell here his heart is still focused on himself. What he doesn't want is the embarrassment of a kingdom being passed to a different family. He wants to have the pride of his son being king after him. He doesn't care about his son. He's still focused on himself. And we know that because he tried to kill his own son. Jonathan now is the one who is angry. He goes out to the field and he does the sign that they had worked on together. They had said, we're not sure if we're going to get to meet together, what it's going to look like, and it'll, it'll, it'll make things less suspicious if I come out to this field and I've got an arrow boy. So he takes his arrow and he shoots it out into the field. And as the boy is going out, the, the, the key word was, no, it's beyond you. Keep going, boy. Keep looking for the arrow. They do get to meet up. Jonathan and David get to meet up. And what they get there is this tearful goodbye. This moment of incredible love and affection and weeping, realizing this, this isn't, they're not going to be able to be friends, not going to be able to be in the same place anymore. David is going to have to spend the rest of his life on the run. And that's what he does for the next 10 chapters. David is on the run. And now Jonathan knows it too. Jonathan has laid down his life. He went before his father and said, told this story so that they could test it out. Jonathan was willing to put his own life on the line. And as we read to the end of the story, it wasn't just hypothetical. David, as David is on the run and Jonathan is chasing him, I mean, Saul is chasing him, Jonathan will eventually die on the battlefield. Jonathan will not get to serve with David in his future kingdom. It's not just a theoretical thing. It's a tragedy. Jonathan dies, and he doesn't get to be part of the kingdom. But did you hear what the promise was that they promised together? He says, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. Not just as long as we both shall live, forever. How could Jonathan and David make a promise like that? Because they knew they served an eternal king. They knew they served a king who is, has all eternity in his hands. And they didn't have the full picture of the gospel. They didn't understand what was going on. But they knew that what they had together was going to last forever. And the only way that was true is because of one who would come much later, a descendant of David, but somebody who looked a lot like Jonathan. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, something that sounds a lot like what Jonathan told David. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. The Lord of the universe looks at me and you when we believe in him and says, not just servant, but friend. And he's willing to be our friend all the way up to the point of even death. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, and someone lay down his life for his friends. The greatest example of self-sacrificing love was what Christ did for us on the cross. He had every reason to hold on to his right as the Son of God, as God himself. And yet he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and gave up his life so that you and I could know eternal love and that he could keep this promise like Jonathan made to David that we could be with him forever. Jealousy is what happens in our hearts when we're self-seeking, self-focused, self-centered. But when we experience the self-sacrificing love of Christ, it changes us, changes our hearts, so that we too can...
can show love from a self-sacrificing heart.